It is indeed a blessing to be able to continue our study in the book of Jude, and it's a blessing to preach two weeks in a row, for I pray that what we learned last week is still fresh in your mind, but if not, let me just remind you by the thesis of last week's message, is that those of us here who have received mercy should be agents of mercy in the church. We should have mercy on those different categories, remember? Those who are weak, those who have been led astray in doctrine, those of us who are those who are not standing on stable ground. I gave an illustration last week that I pray wasn't clear enough. But just as one of the illustrations that Jude gave was Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, that Lot and his family needed to be saved from that city, and they were taken and pulled out by the angels, that they were rescued, they were shown mercy by the Lord by being taken out of there. That is the picture that Jude was giving us of the mercy that we should have on those in the church. Those that need to be pulled out those that need to be rescued, snatched from the fire, as Jude says. And so we talked about looking horizontally in the church, one to another. And today, Jude is going to have us fix our attention vertically now. We looked last week horizontally, one to another, having mercy one another, on one another, towards one another. And now Jude is going to draw our sight up. The title of today's sermon, which I don't do often, is Sinners in the Hands of a Merciful God. The topic today is the preservation of the saints. Let us be reminded, brothers and sisters, that our ultimate security in this world and the world to come rests in the sovereign hand and power of Almighty God. Our God is a merciful God, and He is worthy to be praised. Reminding ourselves of His all-powerful protection, this will give us confidence in the present. It will give us confidence in the future, and it will give us confidence forevermore. The general outline for this one verse will be in three parts. Praise for the present. Praise for the future. Praise for the sun. Praise for the future. Praise for the present. Praise for the sun. Before we proceed to this powerful verse, let us ask the Lord once more to help us. Father, we do ask your help this morning. We do ask you to unfold for us in the pages of your special revelation, that which you would have us learn, that which is for our good, that which will show us Christ. O oh Lord, indeed we are sinners in the hands of a merciful God. Let us see that this morning amplified by your Spirit for our good and your glory. And we all say, Amen. Well, you may have noticed that the title of today's sermon is somewhat similar, in fact, very similar, if not borrowed from 
one of the most famous sermons in Puritan theology. Sinners in the hands of a merciful God is playing off the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you haven't read that sermon, I would encourage you to find it. It is one that is worth reading more than once, and one that has become famous because of the impact that it brings to the hearer and the impact that it brought to the church. It was preached by none other than Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, first to his home congregation and then to other congregations. In Northampton, Connecticut, in the year 1741, at the height of the First Great Awakening. The sermon text for sinners in the hands of a merciful God was Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. This was the text. Their foot shall slide in due time. That was the text. And it is said that Edwards actually veered away from his common practice, which is the right practice that we normatively should have as preachers, by preaching the law and the gospel. The law to convict you of your sin, the law to show you how far you fall short of the righteousness that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven, and then the gospel to show you Christ, to show you the way, to show you the balm for your soul. But it is said that Edwards did not do that in the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He kept preaching law and law and law until it is actually recorded that people were moaning and rolling on the ground in the congregation, pleading for mercy. One commentator says the sermon centers the capacity for a personal religious experience and calls for adherents to confess their sins and seek redemption without delay. It is the quintessential sermon that you may hear of classified as fire and brimstone preaching. Today's sermon is actually the inverse of that. There's a connection between the text in Deuteronomy 32, 35, their foot shall slide in due time with our text today, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. We'll read the text, but this is the point. The doxology today that Jude concludes his epistle with is surely a balm to the soul as the Christian ponders something of the glory that awaits them in the future. But if it's attended by faith this morning, brothers and sisters, it will also provide for us great joy and encouragement in the present time. With that in mind, I hope you see why the outline is as such. Praise for the present, praise for the future, and then praise for the Son. Without further ado, let us read this text. Jude, looking at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now 
and forever. Amen. What a doxology. Let us look at this first verse in this doxology, 24a. Praise for the present. God is merciful towards us, brothers and sisters, in the present time. It's not just something that we need to wait for. He is merciful towards us now. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Jude's closing doxology is rightly acclaimed as one of the grandest in all the New Testament. It is the fitting capstone, as one commentator says, eloquently reminding his troubled readers that their true security lies in the sovereign power of God. But if this is a closing doxology, and we've heard this word many a time, doxology, what is a doxology? If that's what this is, what is a doxology? Well, it comes from the Greek word doxa, which means praise, honor, glory, with also the suffix ology, which we know very well from words like ecology, or geology, or theology, the study of the ecosystem, the study of the world, or the study of God, theos, God, theology. Doxology, then, in Christian worship, is a hymn in praise of the Almighty. It's a particular form of giving glory to God. That's what a doxology is. A hymn in praise of the Almighty. A particular form of giving glory to God. That's how Jude ends this epistle. In fact, many commentators think this is actually a hymn. This was actually intended to be sung. They recognize this in the structuring of the Greek. They recognize this in the word ordering, in the cadence of the words. It very well could be. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Brad and I took something similar out of the book of Hebrews and put it to song. Because this was the idea. This is how hymns were born in the early church. They sang scripture. The Psalms. The Psalms are what? Songs. We sing a doxology every week. It's bringing praise and glory and honor to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above all ye heavenly hosts, recalling all of creation to praise God. And who is this God we are to praise? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. When we sing at the end of our order of worship every week, we're doing something similar to what Jude is doing at the end of his epistle here. So when he says this beginning doxology, what we're doing is we're unpacking the words of this worship. We're unpacking the words of this praise. And he begins by saying this, Now to him who is able. 
Jude shifts attention away from the charge that he gave the church. Remember, he was talking horizontally. He shifts away from horizontally. That charge, if you remember, that we were to be agents of mercy, showing mercy towards those who were being led astray, to now wanting they themselves to receive comfort and assurance by reminding them of the God whom they serve. Now to him. Direct attention is given not to the identity per se of the one who brings them such relief in times of trouble, but to his ability. Now to him who is able. Jude is reminding his troubled readers, again, that their true security lies in the sovereign power of God. And what is this ability that our sovereign God has? To keep you from stumbling. Now interestingly, this word for keep is not the same as is found elsewhere in our English translations in Jude. We've come across the word keep twice, if you recall. Verse 1. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That was verse 1 of Jude. And then in verse 21, right before verse 24 today, he says this, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. This word used here in verse 24 is not the same word used in verse 1. Or verse 21. But rather, the Greek word translated here as keep is, as far as I know, used one other time in the New Testament. And we've talked about it in this, in this epistle of Jude. I would have you turn, if you are able, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We turn to this portion of Scripture at the beginning of our study in Jude. We're turning back to this portion of Scripture at the end of our study in Jude. And that's going to have importance, and I'll show you why. This word keep in verse 24 is the same Greek word that the Apostle Paul used when he wrote to Timothy of the work, the preserving work of God, of the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12, listen to what Paul says to Timothy. You may recall this verse. For I know whom I have believed, Paul says to Timothy, and I am convinced that he is able to protect or guard, your, some of your translations may have. That's the same Greek word Jude is using. He is able to protect what I have entrusted to him until that day. Hold on to the example of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, and here is again the same word, protect or guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So here's the point. When it says in Jude that he is able to keep you from stumbling, it's this idea of able to protect you, able to guard you, now, I started out by saying it's not the same Greek word that is used in verse 1. And that's true. 
And we can fall into a, a word study fallacy and say, so therefore, these two concepts are utterly unrelated. But I would argue, even though it's, this, it's a different Greek word, it's still commuting the, communicating the same context. Verse 1, remind ourselves, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. If you recall what I taught at the beginning of this epistle, it was that there is a preservation of the saints being spoken of in this first verse. We are preserved, we are kept, we are guarded. What did Jesus say in the Gospels? No one can take them out of my hand. No one can take them out of my Father's hand. Why? Because he's the Almighty. And those who God begins a work in, he will be faithful to complete that work in. If you are called effectually by the Holy Spirit to salvation, if you are adopted by God, you are kept by God, safe you are predestined. It's part of this glorious golden chain of redemption found in the book of Romans. Those who God justifies, he also glorifies. So just because Jude is not using the same Greek word in verse 24 does not mean it's utterly disassociated with a, with a different Greek word in verse 1. I would argue that it's a very stylistic choice that Jude is ending his epistle as he began it. You who are kept for Christ Jesus are the ones who God is able to keep. Do you see that? Is God able to keep the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints? Is he able to keep that pattern of sound words as he spoke to Timothy? Is he able to keep that? Was Timothy able to use the means that were given to him to be able to preserve it? Yes. Just as Noah was given a way to preserve his life, what was he given? What was Noah given as, as a way to preserve him and his family and thankfully all of us who are sitting here today? Because if Noah wasn't preserved, we wouldn't be here. He was given the word of God. He was given the counsel of the Lord. But did Noah have to do something? He had to build the ark. It's the same concept. There's dual agency happening here. Although God is able to keep you, it doesn't mean that you can do nothing or you should do nothing. It's that the Lord gives you the means by which you will be preserved. Now, he will be faithful to preserve you. But that is not a call to antinomianism, which means a call to reject the law. No, what it should be is a renewed vigor for us to want to keep the law. Because we love the law. As David says, oh, how I love your law. If you've been given a new heart here this morning and you love the Lord, you'll want to keep the law. Not for salvation, but because you love the Lord. Jesus said as much, if you love me, you will obey me. So don't take this verse here to, to come, out, come off as antinomian. Well, God is able to keep me so I can just live my life however I want. That is the reasoning of the unregenerate. Far be it from any of us who have been purchased by the blood of Christ to think that. But we should take comfort in this. We fall, don't we, brothers and sisters? We fall. We fell this week. Did you? I did. 
Did you fall today? Have you, fought, have you fell yet in sin? I fell this morning. But we're able to keep it because God keeps us. What Jude is going to unpack here is it's not our own righteousness that gets us into heaven. It is not our own law-keeping that is our hope. It is the law-keeping of someone else in our place. We'll get to that. But I want you to see this here. Now, one thing that Jonathan Edwards did when he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God is he used the Psalms to flesh out that passage in Deuteronomy. And I think the Lord today can use the Psalms again to flesh out this sinners in the hands of a merciful God. So open up to Psalm 73 as a counterpoint to what God is teaching us in Jude 24. A, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. All these psalms, I'm going to do this with each one. Each of these headings, I'm going to go to a psalm. So you can keep your finger in the psalms, because we're going to be going there for each one of these. Psalm 73. I encourage you in your time of study after this, this after all is the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour. If you have the ability, providentially, to rest in the Lord by reading his word when you're away from this assembly, I would encourage you to go back to these psalms, these three psalms that I'll be reading this morning, and ponder them in light of Jude 24. I want to look at specifically, though, verse 12 in Psalm 73. This is under the idea of children of the devil. This is what the wicked are like. Okay? Everyone who is not predestined, everyone who is not effectually called by the Spirit, everyone who is not kept by the Lord Jesus Christ, that's who's in view here. This is what the wicked are like, it says in verse 12. Surely you place them on slippery ground. Do you see the connection to Deuteronomy that Pastor Edwards was preaching? Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. I want you to recognize this. Everyone who is not in Christ, everyone who is not the elect, is placed on slippery ground, whether it looks like it or not. One day, they will slip. And they will be cast down to ruin. That is what the wicked are like, says the psalmist. That's the children of the evil one. But now skip down to verse 23. This, on the other hand, are the children of God. Verse 23, the psalmist says, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Which group do you want to be in? Those who gather with us who are not members here, which group do you want to be in? The children of the evil one or the children of God? You guide me with your counsel. That's the law. That's the law. That's why I say this is not a call to antinomianism. This isn't a call to not keeping the law. This is a regenerate heart. Unlike 
the wicked, who are placed on slippery ground, who will be cast down to ruin, I hold the hand of God. He upholds me. He guides me by his word, by his counsel. And afterwards, what will God do? Amongst all your falling as a regenerate son of Adam, a regenerate son of God, after all your falling, after all of your sin, what will be your reward? You will be taken into glory. Not because of what you have done, but because of what someone has done in your place. So here's the application. Jude's figure, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, implies the various disruptive experiences that are encountered on the road of life which tend to upset our balance, does it not? What disruptive experiences were on the road of those who first heard this doxology? Well, it was the false teachers who had crept into the church, who were teaching this erroneous doctrine, who were even taking people out of the congregation. Imagine this. We're sitting here this morning, and you see empty seats around us. Not because we just have a plethora of seats without people sitting in them, but they were filled last week. And now they're empty. And why are they empty? Because those are the seats of the ones who were here, but now are following another teacher who are teaching them things contrary to what you as a congregation are teaching. As you look around you and you see your brother and sister in Christ, imagine if they weren't here today. And you knew the reason they weren't here is because they had joined themselves to a cult. And they were sitting under the teaching of a false prophet, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And that would give you something of the taste of what the first hearers would have received from this doxology. And the encouragement that they would have, knowing that, well, what's to keep me from stumbling? What's to keep me from being swept away by a false teacher? Why am I still sitting here? Should my seat be empty too? Should I go where they went? What confidence do I have that I will be preserved? The sovereignty of God. He is able to keep his own. And even if it's not something as dramatic as following after a false teacher, maybe it's your experiences of sin. These disruptive experiences that attend us on the road to glory. What confidence do you have that you will make it in the light of all your sin and all of your unfaithfulness? What confidence do you have that you will be taken into glory? Remember the quote I shared last week of Ralph Venning, another Puritan? He says, the devil sometimes tempts believers to sin, and that causes them to doubt. And sometimes tempts them to doubt, and that causes them to sin. Have you ever been a doubting Christian? I have. The devil uses that to make us sin. And this question is important because all of us know that we have stumbled in the faith. If you have read this verse in a legalistic light, as opposed to an antinomian light, you might think the opposite, the other side of the ditch, is not that, well, I can live however I like. It's that, well, God is able to keep me from stumbling. He's able to do it. And I know that I've stumbled. So what's the end of that equation? God is not keeping me, right? 
If he's able to keep me from stumbling, and I'm stumbling, then he's not keeping me. You see the logic? The devil sometimes tempts believers to sin, and that causes them to doubt. And sometimes tempts them to doubt, and that causes them to sin. God is able to keep, to guard, to protect us, not only from stumbling in this life, that's what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 73, but also to bring us into glory. Again, because of the works of someone else. I keep saying that and not unpacking it. We're going to get to that because Jude unpacks that. The Old Testament saint had certainty because of the promise, Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Where the Old Testament saint had certainty because of a promise, we now have certainty as saints because of the fulfillment of all the promises of God, which are in Christ. So now that we talked about our present help in danger in the present, let us add to this to give us encouragement, to show us why God is keeping the God is able to keep us and is keeping us here who believe, even though we stumble in sin each and every day. Look at the next part of verse 24. This is the part that must be attached to what just came before. It's not just praise for the present that we have for God. That he is able to keep us by his wise counsel and by his grace. But that God is merciful towards us in the future. Verse 24b. Able, he's able to keep us from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. To make you stand in the presence of his glory. All of the illustrations we see in the scriptures about wheat and chaff. The, the wheat falls into the ground, into the barn. The wheat is gathered up, but the chaff is also gathered and burned. Or rather, the chaff is blown away. The weeds are gathered together and burned. This idea of standing. Standing. Not just standing, but in the presence of his glory. If you've read your New Testament, you know something of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a fearful thing, remember? We talked about this in Jude, in Jude when we talked about the angels who are kept in chains because of their sin. And we talked about how whenever a human sees an angel, what is their natural reaction? They're afraid. Because they're glorious. How much more afraid would we be seeing the presence of God? In fact, we're not able. That was one of the requests Moses made. Lord, show me your glory. And what did God say? No one is able to see my glory and live. So God gave Moses an accommodated view of his glory by hiding him in the cleft of a rock. We are given an accommodated view of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So, uh, uh, something of a proleptic 
foreshadowing of the glory of Christ before the resurrection was given to the apostles, three of them, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' face shone like the sun, and they all fell into a stupor as if they were dead. And yet here Jude is saying that God is not only able to keep you, but able to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Do you capture something of the unthinkableness theologically of that statement? What do you mean? I'm able to stand in the presence of the glory of God that Moses couldn't stand in the presence of in his flesh? Something that caused the apostles, those who ate and drank and slept with our Lord Jesus Christ and journeyed with him, that caused them to fall to the ground as if they were dead? Little old sinner me is able to stand in the presence of the glory of this king? Not in and of yourself. Let's turn to another psalm, Psalm 130. Turn to Psalm 130. There is something that's captured here that is communicating the same thing that Jude is communicating here in verse 24b. Again, I encourage you to read this psalm away from this sermon if you are able. As you ponder this verse in Jude. But listen to this psalm. Psalm 130, verse 3. The psalmist says this, If you, Lord, that is Yahweh, if you, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? That's the point. If your sins were marked, you would not stand. No one could. That is why the wicked will slip unto destruction. Because their iniquities will be marked. Will your iniquities be marked? Will your sin be kept on record when you stand before the king of eternity? When you draw your last breath, which may well be today, I pray it isn't. But when you draw your last breath, and you stand before the king of the ages, will there be a list of your sin brought out that you have to give an account for? Or will you be the one in verse 4? Read when, in Psalm 130, verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait and in his word do I hope. Are you hoping in his word? And who is his word? Who is the word of God? Jesus Christ. All of these scriptures point to him. Are you hoping in the word made flesh? Or are you hoping that all this isn't true? That every word you've heard from this pulpit is not true? That every word that you've heard from preachers are fables, are myths, and the best thing we can do is live, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and there's nothing. 
That is not the words of the psalmist in verses 4 and 5. He waits for the Lord. He hopes in his word. If you are here today and you are hoping in the word of God who will return, you will stand in his presence. The presence of his glory. Why? Because God is able to make you stand and will be faithful to complete that work which he has begun. Oh, come to Christ. And this brings us to our last point. Praise for the Son. All of this is pointing towards the Son. All of this is pointing towards the Jesus Christ, pointing towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only Son begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And if the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, it is the task of the Spirit to disclose to us the Son and His Word. All of Scripture is Christ-centered for that reason. It goes back to the taxis of the Trinity, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and therefore discloses to us the Son and His Word. God is merciful not only towards us in the present, not only merciful towards us in the future, but God is merciful towards us in both of those because he's merciful towards us in Christ. Last part of verse 24, blameless with great joy. He's not only able to keep us from stumbling, not only to make us stand in the presence of his glory, but ultimately able to make us stand in his presence blameless with great joy. The blameless part. You might say to yourself, rightfully so, many, many in the Old Testament did. Impossible. Impossible. God might be able to keep me from stumbling, it's a far stretch to think he can make me stand in his presence of glory. But able to make me blameless? This idea of sinless? Again, in the light of reflecting on your own sin this morning, you can see how someone could come to the right conclusion. That's impossible. But once you wrap your head around how it is possible that God could hold you blameless, guiltless, sinless in his presence. What would be the fruit that comes from that? Great joy. Great joy. Turn with me to Psalm 78. This will be the psalm we spend the most attention on. And I pray, brothers and sisters, that it just gives you a heart on fire for our Lord. And I pray, children who gather with us, that it gives you an opportunity to flee to Christ. To whom much is given, much is required. Psalm 78. As I was reading this psalm, I was reflecting on the beginning and I thought, man, this sounds like me. This sounds like me. When I reflect on my own sin, when I reflect on my own unfaithfulness, listen to Psalm 78. 
where God is actually speaking to national Israel. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. That's what the psalmist intends to do. And for the next 50 verses, he recalls God's care and faithfulness towards national Israel, all the while echoing their unfaithfulness and their persistent rebellion towards him and the covenant that they were in that he made with them on Sinai. In fact, verse 56 illustrates the programmatic response of the nation in the light of the patience of the Lord. Read verse 56 with me. But they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes. Does that sound like you? Furthermore, verse 56 signals a momentous shift in the narrative and indeed redemptive history. The verses that follow retell the covenant curses that were conditioned upon the breaking of the covenant stipulations. You see, national Israel was in a covenant, and it was a breakable covenant. This crescendos into verse 59, where the most fearful words an Israelite of the old covenant could ever hear or imagine were spoken. What does it say in verse 59? He rejected Israel completely. Now, pick up with me in verse 65. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, as a warrior wakes from the stupor of wine. He beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Now listen, we read in the book of Numbers how the Lord was fighting the battles against the Midianites how not one Israelite perished in those battles, how they were kept by God physically, miraculously. Not one Israelite perished in all those battles. And now this same Lord is waging war. Against who? Verse 67. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but a glimmer of hope. Verse 68, he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loved, he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. Another glimmer of hope. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From the tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And verse 72 will be our launching point. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. How could God reject Israel and yet say that Israel is his inheritance? How could God reject his people in those fearful words? He rejected Israel completely. 
and yet lift up David to be a shepherd to guide his people. This goes back to that promise that was made to David in 2 Samuel that we know so well. When your days are completed, God said to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who is this descendant singular of David who would build a house for the Lord and build a kingdom that would have no end? Yes, it is the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in something, something prophetic was happening in that last psalm we read, in Psalm 78, where David is spoken of. Yes, it is speaking to David in the temporal near fulfillment, but is looking past King David to the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. David is often used as a symbol, symbolically, to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Ezekiel 37 and that temple vision, where the Lord says that he is going to build a future temple. And he says this, My servant David will be king over them in that future day, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will all walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. One problem, David has been dead for over five centuries. Some who interpret the Bible say this means that David in the resurrection will be king again over Israel. No, it is Jesus, the greater son of David, who is being spoken of as the servant of the Lord. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. That is the shepherd who shepherds us today in the church. Or how about Jeremiah 30, verse 9? But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. One problem. David's been dead for over five centuries. Is this David being spoken of in the resurrection? No, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom I will raise up for them from the dead. The apostles spoke of such things, Acts 2.30, but he was a prophet, that is David, King David. He was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Or how about Acts 13.23, from the descendants of this man, that is David, according to the promise. What promises? The ones I just read in Ezekiel, the ones I just read in Jeremiah, the ones I read in 2 Samuel. According to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. If you were the psalmist, you could cry out, Where, O Lord, is your loving devotion of old, which you faithfully swore to David? Yes, this David is programmatic. Or how about Isaiah 55? Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My loving devotion promised to who? To David. David, all over the scriptures, all over the Old Testament, speaking of that greater David, that fulfillment, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I want to end our time in the gospel. Turn to Luke chapter 18 in closing. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. Receive the gospel, brothers and sisters. Receive the gospel, those of you here who have yet to do so. Wake from your slumber. Luke 18, starting in verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying the right thing. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. Can you imagine? But he kept on crying all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him this question. What do you want me to do for you? That question is asked of all of us today. What do you want Jesus to do for you? And this blind man said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. I want to see. And Jesus said to him, maybe. You're on the right track, but you didn't ask the right way. No. Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Verse 43. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God, singing a doxology. And when all the people saw it, what did they say? We told you to be quiet. No. They gave praise to God. The catechism says, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? How does God take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh? You ask. This blind man asked repeatedly, fervently, have you asked the Lord to give you eyes, to give you sight? He will not turn you away, just as he did not turn away this blind man. Oh, humans might turn you away, but not the Lord, not the one who asks in faith. Lord, make me see. And when that happens, and you are baptized, we will all, like this crowd, give praise to God. The Pauline doxology to capstone this message today. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think 
according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let that be the way you receive this doxology, this Judean doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not your own filthy rags, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And we all say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your Son, Jesus Christ, is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to you but through him. I pray that you have made this abundantly clear this morning, that he is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. Your only begotten son, who is the life and the light of men. Grow us. Keep us from stumbling as we make our way to your heavenly abode in anticipation of this newly made earthly abode where you will dwell with us forever. Encourage us in our times of doubt so that we do not sin against you. And encourage us when we do sin so that we do not doubt and play into the devil's hand. Rather, Lord, when we fail, remind us of these words that you are able to keep us from stumbling, to make us stand in the presence of your glory, blameless, so that we may have great joy here in the present, in the future, and in eternity. And to him who is able to do far more than we ask or think, we all say, Amen.